Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray, and with me via Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies, the co-host for this uh, segment of the Ecology Hour, and a very special guest tonight talking about marine mammals and diseases in marine mammals. A really important topic that I think a lot of listeners are going to want to hear about. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, Parik Dagman. Uh, he is uh, a director of pathology at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, and he is extremely experienced in uh, diseases of marine mammals. Uh, he's uh, also a affiliate faculty member uh, at the UC Davis, uh, adjunct professor at University of Calgary, and among other things is on a number of national level advisory boards. He's got three decades of experience in marine mammal disease and uh, 120 published papers uh, and 10 book chapters. He's worked in <laughs> United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK and Ireland. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have them, uh, Dr. Dygman, and uh, I think a good place to start would be a little bit about your background, how you got into it, and uh, kind of bring us quickly up to uh, up to snuff about how you joined the Marine Mammal Center. Thank you, Dr. Spees, and nice to meet you, and I'm happy to be here. So just to give you some of that background, I'm from Ireland, and you probably picked that up already from my, my accent. My dad was a biology teacher, so that has big, big role in how I've ended up where I, where I am now. And I actually went to college to be a marine mammal ecologist, like a biologist, and started out with an honorzoology degree in, in uh, University College Dublin, and then proceeded on to graduate school. I did a master's degree, which kind of had a focus more on immunology and, and sort of the health side of, of animals. And I found it very difficult at that time, that was going back to the early 80s, to actually get into a PhD program focused on marine mammals because it just wasn't a big thing back then and it was it was very limited. So I was trying to get into a college in North America to do that, but getting scholarship money, et cetera, was just challenging. So I took an alternate route into the, like the medical side of things. I, I got into vet school and I became a wildlife veterinarian. I specialized in pathology because I figured how better to study something like marine mammals than to actually uh, study them when they're actually on the beach and available because uh, from a health standpoint, studying free living marine mammals still alive is a, still a very difficult thing. So studying pathology and why animals die, why they're sick and all that kind of thing, that became a focus very early on in my career. So I did a PhD in marine mammal pathology in Canada and a pathology residency at the same time. So I specialized in pathology, but also in the health of marine mammals. And then from there, I've worked in California, New Zealand, Australia, back in Europe, and now here as the director of pathology at the Marine Mammal Center in uh, Sausalito. And uh, I've been here, today is actually my seventh anniversary of uh, being in this job as director of pathology. I have a really good team. I have a second pathologist here who, who works alongside me, Dr. Martinez, and a team of lab technicians and technologists. And between us, we have a core team of, of six people. 
and we were able to do some really good work uh, looking at marine mammal health, not just you know in our immediate 600-mile uh, coast uh, stranding response region, but we work internationally as well. So we would collaborate with people in Mexico, Brazil, Canada, uh, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So we we have a, a wide network of collaborators and, and affiliates, and we we're doing some really cutting edge work in emerging and evolving diseases of marine mammals and looking into things like how climate change is affecting them. So lots of very interesting projects going on here. Well, we're very fortunate to have someone with the breadth and depth of your expertise uh, to talk to us about these kind of current cutting edge issues. Uh, could you just give us kind of a, a little thumbnail overview of what's going on on the north coast of California in terms of diseases in, in the marine environment? Well, Tim, it's it's a, an evolving picture. It's never the same year to year. And uh, right now, <clears throat> you may have heard that we're heading into a, an El Nino season. Mm-hmm. So this is a phenomenon that's been happening for, for decades, for, for a very long time. It's a seasonal fluctuation in uh, our, our uh, multi-year variation in sea surface temperature that affects the west coast, which is normally dominated by cold currents. So the cold Alaska current coming down down the coast brings cold water, favors nutrient-rich biodiversity, and it's the core of our ecosystem here. It's why we have so many marine mammals and seabirds and the rich diversity of species and numbers. So it's very different from what pertains on the on the east coast of the United States, where they have a different current system and different water temperature regime. But every few years, the the water temperature across the North Pacific reverses, and that cold water becomes warm water. It comes across the North Pacific, and that will cause biodiversity to crash, and it will affect health of animals, um, mainly through nutrition, nutritional challenge. So that is something that's our marine mammals, seabirds are, are probably going to face sometime this year. Now, in tandem with that, in recent years, we have seen another phenomenon develop. And you might have might recall back in uh, like 2015, 2016, hearing about something called the blob. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that was that was. It's now regarded as a thermal anomaly in the ocean. So. This thing developed, or this water, uh, warm water anomaly developed in the North Pacific in starting in about 2013, 2014, kind of peaked in 2015, but tailed off then 2016, 2017. It was followed immediately after by another one, which peaked in 1819. Now, those two events kind of had the same effect that an El Nino has crashed productivity in the North Pacific but also changed a lot of other things. Like, for example, there's a a very uh, well-known disease of California sea lions called leptospirosis. And again, most of your listeners probably will have heard of this because if you own a dog, you'll vaccinate them against lepto. That's one of the vaccines that puppies get. So leptospirosis is a bacterial disease. Uh, Dogs, cattle, people, in people it's called Wilde's disease. So it's a disease of the 
kidneys or the liver. And depending on the type of bacterium on the host, it can vary between the two. In uh, sea lions, it's mainly a disease of kidneys. And when they get infected with it, it basically wipes out the renal cortex. Mm-hmm. They they go into renal failure and they and they become dehydrated and they almost certainly die if they're not treated. And again, this is a disease that's been around for a very long time. We've known about lepto and sea lions since I would say the early 1940s. That's when it was first kind of documented. Early 1970s, it was confirmed that it was caused by leptospirosis and that bacterium was isolated. And ever since then, these periodic outbreaks of disease have been documented and recorded. And they seem to follow that pattern of the El Ninos. Every three to five years, you would get one of these outbreaks of disease. And then in between, and it's usually in the fall, and in between, the years in between, you might get a few cases, but you don't get a big, big, big epidemic. So a weird thing happened with leptospirosis in the last 10 years. And that was, we had a big epidemic in 2011. It was part of that regular pattern of cycle. And then it just disappeared completely. It completely uh, left the population. So we can track it in animals that are not sick because they've got antibodies against it. Uh, we can track it in, a, in the normal run of things by having occasional animals come in with the disease and we can isolate the bacterium and see, see the effects of it and all of that. But between 2013 and 2017, no animals had it. There was no bacteria isolated. Animals that had blood samples taken for serology, their antibody titers tailed off, disappeared. New pups coming into the population were seronegative, so there was nothing circulating, there were no bacteria circulating. It just, for all intents and purposes, had just disappeared without trace. Interesting, because yeah, it's yeah, been endemic in the population for a long for time. For decades and decades, probably yeah. hundreds wow. of years. Wow. Yeah, so really, definitely it was a wow. Everybody was saying, wow, what the heck's happened? Uh, and it was just very fortunate that at that time, there was a research group that we collaborate with at UCLA, and they had just got big funding, like NSF-level funding, to do research on, on the epidemiology of this disease, to you know really work out what were the dynamics of this, what drove this three to five year cycle and you know what what made it tick like that. So they had started this research and about they got the funding I think in twenty twelve. And then all of a sudden the disease disappears and they're kind of there scratching their heads. Well, what are we going to do now? We've got $3 million to work on this and it's gone. But yeah. th- that was actually very, very fortunate because uh, they'd still put all this effort into the research and they did uh, not only collaborated with us and other stranding centers where we got, you know, got sick animals coming in and were able to monitor yeah. those, but they, they had the funding to actually go out and do field studies with free living sea lions up and down the coast mm-hmm. so they were able to monitor what's circulating in the animals that don't just end up on the beach and strand it are there uh, secondary hosts in the in the cycling of uh, leptospirosis and great question able, able to go after those exactly that that actually was a big part of that uh, project Bob, where they were, that was part of the whole thing was like who else might have this disease what's happening it, to it in the other years when it's it's not manifesting as, a, as an outbreak in sea lions? Is it in elephant seals, harbor seals, um, 
terrestrial animals, you know, wh where else might it be? So that was part of that project too, was to expand the range of where they were looking to try and find it and work, map out all of these transmission routes because it's, it's not whole specific. The, the, the cirovar that's present in sea lions does occur in other species. Uh, we we have found it in, in northern elephant seals. Like this year, we had a small outbreak in northern elephant seal pups. So we do know what occurs in other things, but we didn't know to what extent. So that, yeah, that was definitely a focus of this research. So uh, can you treat animals with leptospirosis in captivity if they're sick? Can you, you know, yes, bring, them, we, bring them through it? Absolutely. So... Um, in like so following that disappearance of leptospirosis it did come back it came back in 2017 we had a small outbreak 2018 we had a very large outbreak and then last year 22 we had another very large outbreak so it has come back and during those years when it's when it's and it's what it's happening right now has continued from 22 till now it's and at by now, this is June, so we should not be seeing leptospirosis now. So something else weird is going on. This is a disease of the fall, as I said. It shouldn't be in midsummer. But uh, when we get animals coming in who are sick with it, um, and generally our clinicians can tell straight away, the animals will be showing abdominal pain. They have like a hunched fetal type position that they're trying to protect their abdomen. Um, they'll be dehydrated. They'll, they'll want to drink fresh water, which is something they normally don't do, but that's what they will want to do because of the, the kidney failure. Um, and depending on how sick they are, they can be treated with fluids, like the same way you would give fluids to a, a human patient. They get, get treated with fluids, antibiotics, uh, and then they'll be got back on food again. If, if all of that works, if they, if they get the fluid, get, get the antibiotics and they start eating again the prognosis is actually pretty good if they don't develop an appetite again and want to start feeding again then the prognosis gets way worse the longer that goes on so in i know i know the figures for the 2018 outbreak and of the animals that we admitted as patients about 60 percent of them died the other 40 percent made it and got released again so the factors that will impact whether or not they live or die, there's a lot of different things, but the age of the animal, the severity of the disease, like the bigger and older the animal, it seems like they hold on longer before they end up sick enough to come here. And so they're already past the point of actually saving them. So that's a factor in that the smaller, younger animals manifest signs of illness sooner and get picked up and brought in and treated and they can they often make it better yeah you're then, probably getting mostly the really sick ones right that, I mean, that's that's right yeah yeah and you know in recent in recent years to especially during the pandemic that impacted who we could you know we had we had fewer people in our rescue crews you know because of the restrictions with COVID and everything and there was more of the triage on the beach happening, you know, where they would only pick animals up and bring them here because we only had skeleton crews at the center too in those like 2020, 21. Um, so only the sickest animals actually came here. So did they figure out where, you know, why it disappeared? Yes. Well, I wouldn't say it's nailed down uh, definitively as to what happened, but they have had a, a theory that was based around the, the blob events and 
the data are now supporting that. So it, it's a, it, it was a hypothesis that is now being supported with some very good evidence. So what seems to, you know, first of all, you have to go back to the uh, understanding the, you know, the life history, the life cycle of a sea lion. So most people think that they're all over the West Coast and, and in some parts of times of the year, they actually are. But most of the breeding happens in Southern California. So the California Bight and the Channel Islands, that is the, the focus of their population. So most, I'd say over 90% of the pups born in that population are born on the Channel Islands. Now, there's another implication of that too to do with the DDT, but we'll maybe get to that later. But uh, the fact that they they have their pups down there and the, the lactation period for a sea lion is quite long. Some people, uh, like people in Mendocino, will be more familiar with harbor seals, and their lactation is very short, three weeks or so, and the pup's weaned and done. But a, a sea lion lactation is at least nine months and often much longer. It can be as long as a year and a half even. Wow. And while they're lactating and the pups are being uh, reared like that, they stay on the Channel Islands. They don't leave. Mum will go on forage locally come back to where the pup is and these periods of uh, attendance with a pup and foraging these cycles will get longer and longer as the pup gets older so initially she spends the first week or two weeks just with the pup constantly and then we'll start foraging cycles and they go for maybe two or three nights she's away feeding up to maybe she's away for a week or so and so that and then eventually she'll wean the pup so when the pups are weaned, then they make their way off the islands, they head to the coast, and they'll make their way up the coast, and then they'll eventually work their way all the way up to, to central and northern California. By that time, they're now mixing with older class animals who have, you know, outside the breeding, the breeding season is, is June, July. So when the males are done with the breeding season and the you know the non-breeding animals the subadults whatever they won't hang around the breeding area they will head up the coast where there's better fishing more food so as the young ones wean they will head up the coast and start mixing and mingling with these older classed animals like if you've ever been to uh, pier 39 in san francisco for example is they're mostly male animals right there but they're mixed age class and that's when the younger ones get exposed to the older ones who are carrying leptospiral bacteria and they're all piled on top of each other you've seen sea lions hold out there they they like close contact no it doesn't matter how much space they've got they'll be right on top of each other and also peeing on top of each other too and that's how it gets transmitted so mm. well yeah, they're starting to do that in Noyo Harbor now. Right, hey, I've seen, I've here. seen that, I've seen that, and that. So that, that's what they do, and that's how these bugs gets gets transmitted. Uh-huh. But what? So they're excreting yeah. it on each other. Hmm. Right. So what happened during that blob period was this whole cycle got disrupted. First of all, when that the thermal anomaly hit and the productivity dropped, the the females who were doing these foraging trips to try and come back, you know, feed their pups, they had to go further and further to try and get enough food. And during that se- those seasons, the worst seasons, they just weren't able to do it. And the pups died of starvation. So huge numbers of pups, the productivity in, in those worst years 
plummeted. And so there was there wasn't the recruitment into the population to feed this, you know, naive cohort that would move up and get the infection. So with two or three seasons of no or very little recruitment, the whole transmission cycle broke. Mm. Uh, uh, So that, yeah, yeah. So it was, was, uh, but, you know, as I said, if this team of epidemiologists hadn't been working on this at the time and putting all this thought into what what's going on and, you know, how, how can we explain this? we probably still will be scratching our heads and thinking, well, did we just get a break from it? You know, it was actually good for us because we, we weren't getting all these sick animals coming in, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's good to know now that there was an environmental reason for it. Yeah. That's but, really an interesting story that it is. You know, yeah. We had Bill Seidman on back, uh, in that era, 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was calling that because it was the North Pacific blob, yeah, and then it collided and merged with the El Nino, and he was calling it El Blobino. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, because exactly. Because it was essentially yeah. warming the ocean all the way. Yeah, and for the first couple of years of that event, the the little strip right here along the coast, in from about the Farallon Islands up to maybe Eureka. Mm-hmm. We still had pretty good upwelling, and there was a little narrow strip of cold water that was keeping mm-hmm. everything alive. And then, yeah, uh, one year I forget which year it was, even that collapsed, and mm-hmm. we had warm water all the way to the beach. And yeah, the carnage from that was immense. Exactly. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't know then uh, that it's news to me now that the, you know, that that worked its way through the disease cycle on these mammals yeah it's that's it's fascinating and again we would not have predicted that but now that we know how it you know everything's interconnected the food web um, the body condition of the animals how they mix and mingle you know all of these things are, are interconnected yeah wow. fascinating if, if you've just joined us uh, we're talking about uh, leptospirosis and sea lions and generally about marine mammal diseases with uh, dr Patrick Diegman from the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito. A fascinating conversation, and uh, there's so much to think and talk about. I think we're going to have to have him on about two or three times. Yeah, beginning to look that way. Yeah, (laughs) we've only just got through one disease in one species of animal. Well, would you like to switch topics to something else? I'm happy sure, to do Sure, Dr. Deegan, what else is going on? Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we at the very beginning, we just mentioned gray whales. And um, we have been working with those a lot in the last uh, few years because, uh, well, we've been working with them for many years. But in the last few years, uh, we've had a mortality event, an unusual mortality event, or UME, as Noah calls it was declared in 2019 and that was because the like the base stranding rate for the the population along the west coast not just California went above like a statistical mean for the species and when that happens for any species then NOAA steps in and and tries to figure out is this something unusual do we need to investigate this do we need to put resources in it and they did and part of the reason for that too was that there had been a previous event that started in 1999 and went through 2000 2001 and that event 
again, accounted for like hundreds and hundreds of stranded whales uh, up and down the coast from Alaska all the way to Mexico. <clears throat> now, back then, it there were fewer people actually doing this kind of response work and investigation. So even though they were documenting the numbers because that, that happened, there was less direct investigation by doing necropsies or autopsies of the whales and, and all of that. Now, this recent event, uh, that was different. So the, that first year, 2019, I think we did over 20 necropsies of gray whales just in the you know the greater San Francisco area, mm -hmm. uh, like Marin County down to like um, Costa Cont, Cont uh, uh, Monterey Bay, Half Moon Bay kind of areas where, where we did these necropsies. The difference for us responding to a, a great whale mortality is that, you know, for other animals like the sea lions, for example, we can actually have them brought here to the center. But for something like a gray whale, obviously we can't move them. We have to go to wherever the whale is dead. Uh, so it's, it's logistically, it's a bigger challenge for us to do that. Mm -hmm. And when NOAA declared a UME, it meant that we were just working on our own. They coordinated everybody from Alaska to, to Mexico, and well, definitely everybody in the U.S. part of the West Coast anyway. So we had working groups. We had regular meetings with, with the NOAA people and our colleagues. So we were able to keep tabs on what everybody else was seeing and finding. So right as we speak, we have got to the point of almost finalizing a manuscript that we hope will get published in a, in a journal very soon, which is on the pathology findings for this UME investigation. So like three years of necropsy work and several hundred whale necropsies and many different teams and people working on it. But the, the underlying or underpinning thing for the whole event. Now, there's not wasn't one single smoking gun that emerged from this, but a single underlying factor was that most of the whales that ended up on the beaches dead were in poor body condition and and sort of worse than we had seen in in the previous years significantly Meaning, uh, worse un underfed uh, underfed yeah mm. and it, it also tied in with the observations of people working in the field like field biologists working in alaska and, and down the coast like the cascadia research group who work out of washington who study live whales so they monitor the migration coming down from alaska and as they go back up and they do things like monitor body condition by various means like by uh, aerial surveys using drones and in the year prior like 2018 or so and and, and leading up to the 2019 mortality event they documented that the whales migrating south from alaska were in poorer body condition than normal mm. so, so they, they feed on benthic uh they do yeah an, animals in the arctic uh, they do yeah yeah so that there was something that was not going as yeah. usual right taking bites now, of mud yeah, so we we've also learned a lot more about their their feeding and diet and foraging than we had known as well, which is all good information that came out of this UME event. But prior to this, the um, uh, the understanding of their biology was, as you said, they go to the the, the Arctic, the Bering and Chukchi Sea in the in the summer months, and the productivity there is high. 
and they feed mostly on benthic organisms, uh, mainly like amphipod type things living in the mud. Filter them out by sucking up the mud and filtering out those organisms from the mud. And then when they've they've uh, put on all this body condition and they, they, it starts getting to freeze up again, they'll migrate south and they go all the way down to Baja California. And there are several lagoons there on the Pacific side where the, the females give birth and they'll spend a few months there in the warmer water, lactating and then migrate back north again. And the belief was that during the migration from going south and then going back north that they didn't actually feed and they didn't feed when they were in Mexico. We now know more about this and there is some feeding that happens on the migration and at places along the route. But most of the feeding still happens in Alaska. So if they left Alaska with an empty tank or a half full tank, that definitely was bad tiding for what might happen in the rest of the migration and trying to, you know, have a calf lactate like put all that uh fat from their body into the milk to feed a calf if if they were already low on energy low on groceries heading into that that was bad tidings because it's a long trip back to alaska again with a calf in tow Mm -hmm. and sure enough that that happened and we had a lot of very very skinny dead animals and then not only that but there were also in in areas where there's high shipping like around los angeles port and here san francisco they were getting struck by ships we we in those last recent years and even this year we've had way more gray whales in san francisco bay than had ever been seen in recent history probably not since the days of the you know the sail ships and the the mm-hmm. whaling industry have gray whales been using san francisco bay as they are right now i think even this week there are still some gray whales in san francisco bay that did not migrate north yet so mm-hmm. all of this is is unusual so uh, not only were they in poor body condition but they're then more vulnerable to getting ship struck or entangled or something else so we had Major causes of mortality were just emaciation from malnutrition, ship strike, entanglement, and then there was also interactions with killer whales. But that they were that's a very small fraction of the of the mortality overall. So the body condition, and so does that come down to the the long scale changes that are happening in the Arctic, like climate change driven things, or is it something that's more cyclical? Um, like with those thermal anomaly events, trying to factor out that bit is the hard part, you know, so that will come down to a lot more study in the field, the ecology of what's happening in the Arctic to try and figure that out. Now, last year, 2020, a very good paper was published on that by a group uh, that work in the Arctic. And they have been able to show that over the years, uh, benthic fauna like the amphipods are actually shifting north considerably north and unless the gray whales also shift their feeding like if they go if, if they're very tied into feeding in particular areas like a lot of animals are they you know they they know the food's good in a particular place they will go there they won't risk trying to find food somewhere else where they might not find it so if they if they don't have the plasticity in their behavior to go looking for food elsewhere, the ones that feed in the more southern parts, the food there is disappearing really rapidly. 
so that we they have documented this now they have actually really good data and figures on the numbers and the populations of these amphipods and they really are changing drastically over a short period of time mm. it was interesting because i was associated uh, uh on an advisory group for a study of the chuck gc mm-hmm. that was carried out by the minerals management service i think it was about 10 years ago yeah uh, it was coordinated through university of texas austin and um they didn't have it seemed like they didn't have the money to do kind of a long term study. I mm-hmm. mean, I think they sampled two or three different years during their five year grant and which does not provide you with a continuous no. baseline picture of what's happening in the bentho. So Exactly. Not, it's, yeah. it's it's decadal change, you know, when it, you yeah. need you need that long term data set to work out problems like this or questions answer questions like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Chukchi was a very, very productive area, mm-hmm. extremely mm-hmm. productive. But mm-hmm. but then you, you get around to the north slope of Alaska and, and those, those shallow seas up there where the gray whales occasionally go into are not very productive at all. Um, and, and that's where the population is now tending yeah. to go there, that direction. Yeah. But who knows how the productivity there will change too, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it, everything there is changing so much so rapidly. Right. Yeah. Fish populations are moving in that weren't uh-huh. there before and uh-huh. that sort of thing. One of my yeah. other projects is actually with nar- narwhals in the Canadian Eastern Arctic. And even in the short time, you know, ten, 10 years plus that I've been working on them, I've seen dramatic changes just in the fetal site area that we work in and it's it's scary how fast it's happening yeah. I, I was i was up there it, so we're talking about the eastern canadian arctic baffin island it's like next door to greenland davis strait is between, between baffin and greenland the whales spend the uh, winter months out in the davis strait where there are polinias that's open water areas that still stay open water in the in the winter and then as that the ice starts breaking up they follow the leads into the fjords north of baffin island and into those those channels and that's where they have their calves and they feed in the summer and it's like highly concentrated in particular fjords so we went up there in 2013 and the the uh, the reason for the project was trying to get baseline um status on the health of the population and how resilient they might be to change and you know i'd have to say that even trying to start that in 2013 that it was almost like the barn door was already open you know it was almost too late but you know we started that project then and then i went back again it was meant to go back in 20 you know every two years i was meant to go back 2015 and for you know weather and logistical regions that didn't happen so we went back in 2017 and in between, so between 2013 and 2017, they opened up an iron ore mine on one of the fjords because now it's ice free for a lot of the time. So they could open up a huge, if one of the biggest iron ore mines in the world. So in a fjord where this narwhal calving and feeding had happened and there were no no motorized boats at all apart from the Inuit small little skiffs, you know, with a little outboard engine on them. All of a sudden, there's major iron ore carrying ships in there, 
and they've built a big dock. There are three or four ships waiting at the dock to go up the fjord to the mine and come back down again. So this constant traffic of ships in and out of the fjord. When I first went there, you'd sit on a little cliff and you would see just pods and pods of narwhals coming past to go up the fjord and you know to the calving grounds and feeding mm. grounds. And the second time I was there, I think we saw two narwhal. Wow. Yeah, and we saw not only those iron ore ships, we saw cruise ships, we saw private yachts, um, just way more boat traffic and human footprint, way more permafrost melting. Uh, it was it was unbelievable that yeah. in, in, in just that short space of time you would see such a drastic change. And the population, uh, uh, again, there were some biologists up there studying what's happening, and they published a trend graph of the numbers of narwhal in this particular fjord that we were working in, and it's just plummeted. The the numbers have gone from thousands down to a a couple of hundred still using that fjord, which was the prime habitat for them in that area. So they, they, they weren't killed off, but they were displaced to other places that up probably suboptimal habitat. And then a second thing that's happened, and I also saw this because happened when we were there, killer whales, which never used to be able to go there because of the ice, and they have the big dorsal fins, so they're not adopted to swimming in and around ice, but belugas and narwhals are. Now with less ice, there are, are killer whales all over the Arctic, and they are just hunting down belugas and narwhals like their popcorn you know they mm. just wipe, wipe out entire pods of of narwhal wow. uh, yeah. it's another paper was published on that just very recently estimating that something like 1500 narwhal a season are being killed by killer whales in that region now out of a population of 70,000 so how long will they last mm. well the uh <clears throat> apparently the uh, killer whales are uh, at least one of my friends kind of hypothesis. I don't know if you agree with this, but they, 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 they started knocking off all the whales uh, as the whale populations have gone up and, mm-hmm. and the sea lion populations, uh, particularly of stellars, has gone down and they've kind of worked their way down from the big stellar sea lions. Uh, now, now they're po- picking off or, or have been <laughs> uh, 20 years ago, picking off the uh uh, sea otters. Uh, oh yeah, Aleutian, Aleutian Islands. That's that's right. Yeah, I saw a, a, pa- a photo. I think it might have been in a paper that was uh, on killer whale predation on otters, and and one stranded killer whale was necropsied, and it had something like seven or eight otters in its stomach or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they'd have to eat a bunch of them. Yeah. 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 That we had. That was your buddy Jim Harvey, wasn't it? That was. Is that who we had on describing that sort of the, the yeah, top down? Uh, no, it was um, uh, Jim Estes. Jim Estes. Oh, Jim. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. Uh, uh, Alan Springer, too, mm-hmm. uh, from mm-hmm. University of Alaska. Right. Springer was the guy, I think, that came up with that that whole chain reaction, starting with the Japanese whaling in the uh, yeah. yeah, right after the yeah. war in the mid-20th century, mm-hmm. taking out all the small whales that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, like Aldo Leopold, I think it was, uh, you know, everything's 
got these strings connecting it. You pull on one of them and start to find out where it's, how everything is tied together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So the going back to the gray whales for a moment, uh, that we we had um, Bob. Who was it that we had on that was talking about that uh, about the gray whale, and that pointed out that they're they're a little more adaptable than most whales in their food choices because they t- make use of a number of different kinds of food in in different feeding grounds and. He had some optimism that this uh, mortality event was going to lead to kind of a an overall shift in the population and how they feed and where they feed. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Dainan, are you familiar with any of that? Well, killer whales definitely are very, um, they're opportunistic, but they can also be very specialized. Like you, you you hear a lot about those southern resident killer whales and how badly they're doing and that they have relied on the salmon and that's all they will eat. Um, and even it's been documented that they, southern resident killer whales will kill porpoises or seals, but they don't eat them, but they'll only eat salmon. Mm. And so and so now with less salmon, they're, they're doing really badly. But other populations, that the ones that feed on marine mammals or feed on sharks, they're doing really well. And, uh, but overall, I mean, they're, they're a global species, but regionally, and there's, there's a lot of different ecotypes of them. So there's so much variation within that one species. It's, it's hard to even generalize about killer whales. How about the gray whale? Um, and again, like I said, with, with gray whales, we thought we knew everything about them. You know, we, we knew, <laughs> you know, we thought that they only fed on the amphipods and the similar invertebrates in the Arctic, they did the migration and all of that. Now we know there's a population called the sounders that live or spend their summers off Puget Sound. They don't go to the Arctic anymore. That's where they, they stay and they'll, you know, migrate between there and Mexico. And, our cetacean guys here, who we have a little team of research cetacean researchers here at the center, and they've been monitoring the, the movements and uh, residency of these whales off, you know, off the coast right here and in the bay. And one of the the gray whales that actually died here, and we did the necropsy on just a few weeks ago, had been resident in the bay for 87 days or something, which was a, a record. And... Uh, and then when they went back and looked at their photo ID records from the field studies they were doing, they were able to see that this same whale, a male, had been here two seasons before as well, or just down the coast. Mm-hmm. So it has begin. It was like the beginning of maybe there's a, a you know a group, a foraging group like this forming right here in in this region. Now, unfortunately, <clears throat> that whale, when it showed up at you know at the beginning of that 87-day period of residency, was in fat body condition. It was really good body condition. It came into the bay and it was hanging out in the bay, and then it got struck on the back by a mm. ship, fractured his spine. Mm. And his body condition just plummeted and our field guys were out you know taking photographs every day and they were able to show how this body condition was just peeling off him and then he got struck on the head and that finished him and he ended up on the beach at Bolinas mm. um so 
again, they may have a lot more plasticity in their behavior and choices than we had given them credit for. And perhaps, yeah. you know, maybe in the past, that's what they did. You know, when, you know, before we came along, before there was mm-hmm. this, you know, the industrial hunting and everything, uh, maybe they did use the bays up and down the West Coast more than they had been doing. And when you think of it, San Francisco Bay is a huge bay and it's very shallow and it's the biggest bay on the West Coast and it's kind of like halfway up the coast. You know, why wouldn't they have used it? So, yeah. Well, uh, it's a little bit off the pathology uh, <laughs> subject, but uh, uh, ship strikes seems to be a real big problem. Uh, it's huge. Mammals, yeah. With, uh, with whales. Yeah. 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 And I know people have talked about getting ships to slow down in areas and trying to alert ships to the presence of whales and mm-hmm. um do you know much about the status of that sort of effort absolutely yeah and uh, yeah. you know I, there's somebody here one of my colleagues uh kathy george and i would recommend you get her on on your show some point and she'll give you a lot more information on this so just recently kathy and i uh, were invited down to do uh plenary presentations at the Suema conference in Mexico. That's like the Mexican Society for Marine Mammal uh, Biology conference, their annual conference. And it was in um, Manzanillo in the beginning of, beginning of May. So I, I talked about disease and climate change and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Kathy actually went to talk specifically about this issue, about ship strikes and, and large whales. And that's what she is uh, totally focused on. And she is now chairing uh, a management board that involves uh, San Francisco Port, uh, the Gulf of the Farallones, and a number of different organizations that have uh, authority over shipping, shipping routes, uh, lanes, uh, shipping speeds, the placement of shipping lanes, and all of that kind of thing. So they are actively working on looking at all the data on this and trying to come up with better ways to manage the commercial shipping so it, i mean obviously it has to it has to work with the, the, with commerce you can't just close down the port and stop the shipping i mean it's it's going to happen it has to happen but there are definitely strategies and ways to work around the whales and make it so that at least it's less lethal to the whales and mm-hmm. and there are ways to do this now, and they have got uh, acoustic monitoring buoys out there, and and all, and you know, with drones and all sorts of technology. There are now ways to know exactly where the whales are, inform the shipping captains where they are, and and uh, tweak and modify um, routes and speeds and all that kind of stuff to avoid this the level of mortality we've we've been seeing in recent years so that is something that's definitely an active and ongoing thing and and it's just ramping up now and you know i'd recommend you get kathy on to really give you all the details on this because she's she's really the one leading it sounds, sounds like great, great yep great yeah. idea for a show yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so yeah that's something that we, we could really help the marine mammals uh, you try to think mm-hmm. of things you can do to help marine mammals I yeah. mean, you can study them, but what what can you actually do? Yes. I remember in Ex- the Exxon Valdez, we documented uh, probably, you know, 2,200 
uh, sea otters being killed mm-hmm. by the spill in Prince William Sound and uh, surrounding areas. And, and the question is always, what can we, <laughs> how, how can we use the money that we get from Exxon to actually make a difference? Exactly. Uh, to yeah. The, yep. to the population. So if there's something that can actually, and it was always a challenge. Uh, and if there's something you can actually do, uh, that's well, really worth mm-hmm. focusing effort. Yeah. Yeah. And another sort of conundrum is, you know, we've we've known about the uh, the effects of DDT and those kind of uh, chemicals on marine mammals and other wildlife for you know for a long, long time. You know, go back to you know the the um, the work that was done with the peregrine falcons and eagles mm-hmm. and the eggs and all. You know, going back that's going back to the early seventies and yeah, well, Bob uh, Bob Riseborough and doing yeah. all that work. Yeah, 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 and you know Rachel Carson and Silent yeah. Spring and you know. So we've known one of the great conservation success stories of the twentieth century: the right, recovery right. of brown pelicans, peregrine falcons, and bald right. eagles. But a lot of people aren't aware that it's still a big problem. It's still going on because, you know, those chemicals are legacy chemicals that do not break down very easily. And even what they break down to is mm-hmm. often toxic in itself. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's an ongoing thing. And uh, David Valentine and people in Southern California in, in recent years, and there was you know a lot of media in 2020, 2019, 2020, about the, you know, the... Uh, I wouldn't say the rediscovery, but the you know the detailed documentation of where all the DDT was dumped off the Southern California coast. Right. right. So the Monsanto plant uh, in Southern California produced most of this waste, and part of the waste was literally dumped into the sewage system and right off the Palos Verdes shelf. So literally right off the coastal mm-hmm. shelf. And then the rest of it was taken in containers and barrels and taken out by boat and dumped in the trench at over a thousand feet deep, or supposedly anyway. It turns out a lot of it was dumped en route, uh, all so you know all along the slope and you know, some of it is in the, in the trench, etc. And there are two major dump sites down there, so they were able to document where these are with uh, you know, these unmanned submarines. And not only did they find where the barrels are, the dumps, but they were able to actually show that these had been pierced by axes before they were even dumped off the mm-hmm. ship to make them sink quicker. You know, so you know any sealing of this stuff into a container was null and void right from the very outset. So the uh, sediments down there are just loaded with DDT plus chemicals. And we've been monitoring that in our marine mammals for for decades. And we published a paper, and it was sort of coincided with this discovery. We published a paper in 2020, which was a 20-year case control study of cancer in sea lions. And we were able to show with hundreds and hundreds of animals that had cancer, hundreds that did not, like this proper case control uh, setup, we were able to show that the two factors that linked very strongly uh, with the uh, presence of cancer in an animal was the presence of, of a herpes virus that carries oncogenes or cancer-causing genes. So they have to have that. But what turns that from being just you know an early change in the epithelium, you know something that may or may not turn into a malignancy, to turning into a malignancy that kills them, is how much of this DDT-type toxin they have in their in their body fat. So if they have a little bit of the toxin, 
they may or may not develop cancer, uh, malignant cancer, but if they have a high level, and most of them do, they go on to develop malignancy and they will die from it. And That's really interesting. It is. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And, and of, of the patients that we bring in here, of the adult California sea lions that are admitted to our hospital, 24% of them have cancer. Hmm. And it's one one type of cancer. Now that that is unprecedented because you think of any population, human or animal of any kind, you will get cancer, but it'll be at a low percentage. It might be it'll definitely be less than five percent, and often much less than that even. And if you think of the kind of cancers we get, you know, you think of people you know who have cancer. It's multiple different kinds. You know, pancreatic, uh, prostate, breast cancer. What it's loads of different kinds. Sea lions is mostly one kind. It's urogenital carcinoma. So it's it's like cervical cancer in, in people. And part of that's to do with the virus. That's where the virus goes. But then you've got the additional of, of, the, of the toxin on top of that. So because of all the publicity that that discovery about the, bar- the barrels and the dump sites got in 2020, there was a series of workshops held with multiple stakeholders. And it included us in that from the pathology and the sea line perspective. And thankfully, out of that, the California state, state of California has now put, I think it was $6 million into further research into this problem. And we, we just managed to get a part of that money through collaborators with uh, at, at UC, uh, San Diego State University, who are the toxicology people. So we will now be working with them to do a deeper dive into exactly what chemicals are, are associated with the cancer. And it, it looks now like there's a much broader suite of chemicals than we even thought of were, mm-hmm. are involved in this. We, there was a, a number that we tested that were used in that paper, but recent work that this group in uh, San Diego have done, and they also work with condors and dolphins and other things, um, they've shown there's a much broader suite of DDT-type chemicals involved. So we've just started, like literally a couple of weeks ago, we've just started on this new research. Wow. You're, you're coming pretty close to my wheelhouse because <laughs> I spent a few years studying uh, the effects of uh, DDT PCBs on kelp bass reproduction. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Southern California had yep. a big NOAA-sponsored study and got right. into a really ugly lawsuit. But, yeah. uh, I also <laughs> studying legacy <clears throat> chemicals in um, San Francisco Bay and effects on starry flounder reproduction uh-huh. and showed a link between PCBs and... Uh, the, how, how well the, uh, the, the spawned eggs from uh, females that were contaminated with high levels of PCBs uh, had poor, reprodu- poor reproductive success and poor hatching success and that sort of thing. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. some of, like there's multiple collaborators in this, this grant that we're involved in. So I'm, I'm just involved with the sea lion part. But we have collaborators who are also looking at fish and we have, you know, animal models with zebrafish and stuff like that as part of this project mm-hmm. too so mm-hmm. yeah multi multi-level multi-factors i'm glad to hear about that because mm-hmm. i knew about valentine's work at uc santa barbara yep. on identifying these and i said somebody needs to go out and spend a little bit more money mm-hmm. figuring out how these uh 
all this DDT that's not just on the shelf where we thought of it 25 years ago. We thought, well, 20, mil, uh, 20 metric tons of DDT on the yeah. Valles Verde shelf. Well, <laughs> there's apparently a lot all over the Southern California Bight. There and is, yeah. Particularly yep. in San Pedro Basin. Yep, yep. Over near Catalina Island. Yep. Big dump, dump yeah, there's a lot of concern over the potential release if, if they get a submarine landslide triggered by an earthquake on nearby right. fault could be a catastrophic release yeah. right yeah right yeah most of the ddt that's on the palace Verde shelf is buried you know 23 right. centimeters mm-hmm. down because all that particulate matter from the sewage mm-hmm. piled up on top of that but mm-hmm. uh you know <clears throat> earthquake uh, and that i forget the degree slope but it's a pretty good slope mm-hmm. down palace Verde shelf and then you got a really good big shaker and then that's how you get submarine landslides you're going to expose yeah. that DDT and PCB laden sediment that's further down in the oh, yeah. so sediment column. Yeah. We could be dealing with this for, for decades and decades more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a problem that doesn't get solved quickly. No. Well, Dr. Dynan, we only have about uh, three minutes left in the program. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and the time has really gone by quickly. Uh, we didn't get yeah, it's to... Been, been fun. Uh, Thank you. I'm fairly sure there's some more diseases that we didn't even get to talk about. Lot, lots of them. I'll, I'll, I'll just have to come back. Yeah, you <laughs> oh, will. Love to, we, we'd love to have you back. Yeah. Really would. yeah. I don't know if there's time to talk about it. You mentioned before we started the, something about domoic acid as well, and that's obviously mm-hmm. a topic a lot of people are really interested in because the effects are both our commercial and recreational fisheries. I've forgotten what those effects are. So demoic acid is it, <laughs> isn't that what they say about the sea lions? Oh, yeah, yeah. Affects their memory. Yeah, that's true. It, it it does. It does. I mean, it affects the limbic system, and it's kind of where your memory and emotion and all of that kind of thing is. Yeah. And you know, the, there's a story here at the center of a, a sea lion that w- she was treated for demoic acid. She was treated for the seizure, so she she was treated for that, and you can treat them for that. And she seemed to be fine and had eaten well and in captivity. So they put a satellite transponder on her when they released her. And she just went straight to Hawaii. You know, she just had complete <laughs> lost any spatial memory of where she should be. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's pretty sad, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and yeah. like, w- we do cases here now where, you know, an animal might have died of leptospirosis or cancer or something else. But we also always examine the brain and we look at this part of the brain, the hippocampus. And it's actually very difficult now to find a sea lion with a normal hippocampus. Huh. Yeah. Wow. They, they, because when you think of it, these events are, are repeated and they, they may take in a dose of demoic acid that doesn't kill them, but it will have an effect and it will cause some damage. And so incrementally, they're losing more and more of this capacity in the uh-huh. brain. Wow, wow. Yeah, because and it affects the heart outbreaks. too. Yeah. We keep getting them and, and they become more frequent and longer lasting and they cover greater geographic range. Like you look at the heat maps now for where demoic acid is and like right off, off your coast, you can, there's red right up there, you know, so... Mm. Uh, in the past, when it first started, I think it was the very first outbreak that was documented here was in 1998. And that's when it was actually first recognized as a problem for the West Coast marine mammals. And then there was so 98, then there was 2004, 2009 or so. So they were kind of like well-spaced. 
and they weren't every year and they were usually just in the summer months now we're seeing them every single year and like often multiple times in a year and sometimes year round you know 2015 that year of the blob all the way up to alaska so well yeah wow well i think we're gonna have to leave it there dr dynan thank you so much for spending yeah. an hour with us thank, thank you. you great interview thanks thank for joining you us. Okay. really enjoyed it this has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.